Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. Welcome back to our classroom. Today, I am joined by a special person, somebody who is close to somebody I know and live with, Lorena Germán, a co-founder of Hashtag Disrupt Text. Trisha is an amazing advocate for literacy instruction rooted in equity and liberation through critical literacy. And she has published this new book, Get Free Instruction. Wow, 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 wow. I love the bright cover. <laughs> Get Free Instruction for strong anti-biased literacy for stronger readers, writers, and thinkers. Listen, folks, I, I'm still working through this, but I could already tell you this is the gem. This is a gem right here. And I've been digging in in order to prepare for this interview. Trisha has 20 years of experience teaching high school English, is the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at an independent school in Philadelphia. She's also co-founder of the Institute for Racial Equity in Literacy, a national writing project educator. Trisha does it all. But we're here to talk about anti-bias literacy so we're gonna dig in thank you thank you thank you for being here trisha it is my pleasure to have you on the platform oh thank you so much roberto of course and i'm so happy to be here and of course lorena shout out to lorena uh, for connecting us and can't wait to talk yes well and trisha how do you pronounce your last name i always want to make sure i'm, I'm saying folks name the right way yeah Thank you. Thank you for asking, because it's been uh, mispronounced many times. Um, it's Ibarvia. Ibarvia. That's what I thought, but yeah. better to ask than to assume. Yeah. So thank you. We um, Listen, we're not going to waste any time because I got questions. I've been thinking about right. this, <laughs> flipping through the pages. And so let's go ahead and start with the title of your debut book, Get Free, Anti-Bias Literacy Instruction for Stronger Readers, Writers, and Thinkers. What are you trying to free people from? So I think for me, the title really, um, it's really about people freeing themselves, right? Like it's about people understanding that, look, we live in a society where we've all been socialized by all the isms, right? All these different forms of oppression. And if we're not conscious of them, if we don't stop and do our work and think about the ways in which every thought, action, decision, um, and as, if we're teachers, every instructional decision that we make, if we're not conscious of the ways in which that all of that has socialized us, then we might end up just perpetuating those things. So the idea of getting free for me is being able to be free of the way that socialization controls us, right? Or informs our decisions. And, you know, this idea really came to me from, um, there's a quote, the, I think it's the first, yeah, it's the first quote that I, I cite in the book um, from Dr. Barbara J. Love. Um, Roberta, can I read it? Just I'll just go ahead and read it. Yes, yes, yes. 
Okay, so she says that a liberatory consciousness requires every individual to not only notice what is going on in the world around him, her or him, but to think about it and theorize about it. That is to get information and develop his or her own her own explanation for what is happening, why it is happening, and what needs to be done about it. So when I think about getting free, I think about that liberatory consciousness, right? That I can be conscious and aware and see the ways in which I'm both complicit and challenging things around me, and then being able to have agency in doing something about it. Mm, that's good. That's good. Uh, being complicit and challenging, right? Uh, looking at all angles of this and how it is that we can work towards our liberation, right? Individually mm -hmm. and collectively. Yep. And, and that's going to bring me to my next question, which is, here's a quote early on in the book. To have the part of my identity reflected in these pages means something, everything. Can, can you elaborate on this quote? Uh, find it, it found in the page titled, A Note on Artwork. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so thanks for bringing up the artwork, because that was something that was really important to me. You know, um, I have seen and read my own share of professional books. And I don't know, you've read your own share of professional books, too. And there's always like this, like, look to them, right? They kind of have this generic, I mean, traditional, they're getting better, but they always have this like sort of look, there's like a title. And then there's always like pictures of kids. And then there's like a teacher sitting next to them. Right? Like, it's a very like generic kind of um, you know, this is a teacher book, right? right? Right. And I don't have anything against those books necessarily, but I knew that that's like not me. Right. And I think as someone, I say in the note on artwork, how, you know, growing up, didn't really see many mirrors, you know, to my own cultural and ethnic experiences and anything that I read, or, I mean, forget about art. Like I don't, I mean, I still have to work to do today to, you know, really understand and learn about Filipino artists and such. But um, I knew that I didn't just want the words on the pages to reflect me, but I also wanted like, I'm a visual person, like mm -hmm. I like to see things and graphic design is really important to me. Anyone who knows me knows that like my slide decks and my PowerPoints are on point. Like I have to have a certain way, like Lorraine, when Lorena and I present together, I was like, Lorena, just send this up to me and I will make it look pretty. Mm -hmm. Um so it was really important for me to have the artwork throughout the book and the cover really be reflective of my identity. And so when I spoke to my publisher, we I said, you know, I there's a few artists that I've seen out there. Um, I would love to have a person of color be the person to design the cover. Um, better yet, if it's an Asian American. And better, better yet, if it's a Filipino. And um, I went on Instagram and I found um, Guillaume Wong's work. And I just loved it. Yep. I just, I love the way that he, all of his designs, if you find them on Instagram, all of his designs incorporate like Filipino um, elements, but with like a modern twist. And I just fell in love. They reached out. Um, he said yes. And I was just really, um, I'm just so grateful. And um, for readers who look at the book, that note and artwork that you said where I wrote that, there's like a little key that actually has all the things, uh, all the artwork in it. Like every chapter is one of his illustrations and it corresponds to like the theme of that chapter. So he got a full manuscript, you know, a draft. And so he was like able to look at it. Yep. And then think about like what modern, like what ways he could represent the ideas of that chapter through some sort of um, 
artwork related to the Philippines. So that was really, that was really special to me. So I just, I just love that part of the book. That's great context. You know, it's, it's nice to be able to create a product, write a book that tells a greater story than simply yeah. the words that you read. I mean, the words that you documented here tell us more than enough, but having that additional layer, I would imagine makes it special for you. And it's yeah. going to be something you're going to be able to hold on to and, um, you know, bring others into that particular piece of history yeah. as it relates to this book, but also that the illustrator is going to be able to, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I was yeah. able to work my illustrations throughout the book and yeah. you know, simply the cover. Right. Well, that, that's it. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. That's, that's uncommon. Uh, I, I find that to be uncommon. Yeah. Well, I, I think the other thing is too, is I also want it to be like, you know how sometimes, you know, like when you have, um, you know, culturally specific or you have background knowledge and you see something like you can, like, you know what the illusion is like, or, you know, like this is something only Filipino people would know, or this is only something that like, you know, certain different ethnic groups might just know. Cause you just get it right. Like you're, you're like, I don't want to, it's not an inside joke, but you have, you have the extra layer of being able to read a text. Right. So I wanted people to be able to, my hope was, and this is what I told um, Gian, that my hope was that, fellow Filipinos and Filipino teachers, right, would look at the cover and they would see, they would already know that a Filipino must have designed this cover, right? Mm. Like from the colors, the chosen colors, like someone said to me, oh, before they saw the whole cover, they're like, oh, I love how it's the colors of the Filipino flag. And I'm like, yes, that's purposeful, right? And like, like little things like this flower is like a modern rendition of the Sambaguita flower, which is um, the national flower of the Philippines, like stuff mm. like that. Like you have an extra, like, so a person who's outside of the culture will be like, oh, that's a beautiful cover. But then a person who's inside the culture will be like, oh, I see all this other stuff. And they might feel affirmed, right? They might feel like, oh, like part of me is in this book too. That's dope. That's yeah. dope. Um, so I'm curious to know how the work in this book intersects with the work of Disrupt Text. Yeah, I, it's like totally integrated throughout. I mean, like when you read the book, um, you know, because we were, I was writing the book at the same time we, you know, were founding Disrupt Text. So all of it is like, it's just like enmeshed in it. So like when I think about Disrupt Text, you know, we have got our four core principles, right? The first one is um, continuously interrogate your own biases. Chapter one is all about like, is all that. It's like we teach mm -hmm. who we are, like, and how do we think about how, who we are and how we've been socialized and forms our practices um, the second uh, principle of Disrupt Text is to center BIPOC voices. And a lot of the work that I try to do in the book through the mentor text that I've chosen, and then also through, um, you know, the mentor text, but also through like the strategies is all about the counter narrative, like identify the dominant narrative or misconception that students may be coming in with class into class with. And then what is the counter narrative? What's the mentor text? What are the things that I can um, share that helps open up and widen the perspectives and the whole thing is strategies on like from a critical critical literacy lens like the entire thing there's like one protocol that's um it's one of my favorites it's called cmm which is like who is centered who is marginalized and who is missing and how they might think about like that in books that they're reading but also in arguments they're reading about in the world 
And then the last principle of Disrupt Techs is um, to work in community with a lot other anti-racist educators, especially BIPOC folks. And I think that, I mean, that's just who I am. So you see other how other people have influenced me like throughout the book. And I I was really intentional and um, 75% of my citations are BIPOC scholars, right? Mm. So that was really important to me too. Um, so, and to show that like we build on each other, right? right. We build on each other. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's awesome. That's I, I love the way that y'all as a collective have been able to make such a profound impact. And I'm also appreciating each of you shining as individuals and, and through your writing, because at, at this stage, each of you has now published a book. Yeah. I was the last one, <laughs> it's so, but it's complete. The collection is complete. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. I, uh -huh. I, I, I salute y'all. I salute y'all because I've been able to witness all the great work that y'all have done collectively and, and to some degree individually, but now to be able to hear your voice, get deeper into your thinking, uh, really work through your writing and Julia's writing and Kim's writing and obviously Lorena's writing, who, you know, I'm, I'm able to work through more closely, uh, than, than the rest of y'all. But it, it feels like <laughs> so much has come together for you all as a collective, but also it's come together for you individually. And yep. I know that this was a, a great, great labor of love. Uh, for you and that you poured a lot into in these last few years to to make this happen. So uh, I'm extremely excited to see where this goes and see the, the ripple effect that this book is going to have. I'm wondering, for people who oppose this type of work, those that argue that as teachers, we should simply stick to the standards or just do skill building versus anti-bias work. How does your book respond to that notion? Hmm, excuse me. I think, so here's the thing. This idea that like anti-bias literacy instruction or anti-racist um, instruction is somehow separate from skill building or somehow separate from like standards is just, it's false, right? It's not an either or, that's actually a fallacy to say that it's either or, it's one. It's a fallacy that I actually talk about in the book. Um, it's integrated, it's inherent. In fact, you cannot build strong readers, writers and thinkers unless you have an anti-bias lens, like that period. Like if you don't, you're not intentionally embedding anti-bias literacy instruction into your literacy instruction, then you're, if you're not fulfilling the full potential of what you can do with kids, right? And speaking of standards, to prepare for our, our conversation today, I was like, okay, let me let me actually look at these standards. So I did a little digging, and um, I'm in Pennsylvania, so I went and looked at the uh, Pennsylvania Core Standards for English Language Arts, which I know pretty well because I taught in public school for 20 years. And standard CC 1.4.11 to 12.1 is literally has the word bias in there, where it's um, it says to distinguish the claim from alternate or opposing claims, to develop a claim and counterclaims that anticipate the audience's knowledge level, concerns, values, and possible biases. 
right? Um, I know that you uh, and Lorena are in Florida. So guess what? I looked at the Florida standards too. And the Florida best standards, um, that acronym for whatever it is, uh, I think benchmarks for excellent student thinking, right? I don't know how you can have excellent student thinking unless you're aware of biases, right? And so I, I looked up in the Florida standards and do you know that the word bias is in the glossary of terms that kids should know, right? And it says clearly that kids need to have the tools of understanding how argumentation works as they're learning to write arguments, right? Mm. And then our one of our other favorite states that's always in the news right now is Texas. Uh, yes. You know, we know we used to live there. That's where we came from. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, and Texas, the same thing, right? Chapter 110 under Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills for ELA, um, letter G, students should be able to examine sources for credibility and bias, including omission, right? And I don't know how you can do that if you're not paying attention to which voices are missing from your curriculum, to which voices have been historically marginalized. You simply cannot do that. So people are like, you know, we shouldn't be doing this stuff. That's false. Like you, you can't actually be teaching standards or skill building if you're not already doing this. Came ready, came ready for this interview. <laughs> yeah, oh, I came ready. I was like, yeah. let me, let me look up, <laughs> let me look up these standards. No, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. I, I want to pivot a little bit now, and I yep. want to read an excerpt from your book, chapter six in particular, which is titled "Perspective Taken and Perspective Bending Strategies for Reading Instruction." Then I want to invite you to react. My parents immigrated from the Philippines in the 1970s, and although I grew up knowing I was proud of my cultural roots, there was so much I didn't know. The Tagalog, did I say that right? Yeah, that's correct. I'm proud of myself. (laughs) The Tagalog words that rolled off my parents' tongues, the kumustas and pares and ois, that danced in the air and announced my relatives' arrival before their feet stepped through the doorway. These words are the only ones I have. Whenever I read these lines from Rio's poem, I think about all the words that I didn't know as a child. And I still don't know even now, decades later. Unlike the speaker in Rio's poem, it's not because I couldn't choose the ones to be my own, but because they were the only ones I had left. Of the centuries of words that came before remain but a few. That I read that I'm like, oof, wow, there's a lot going on there. And I appreciate you opening up and making yourself vulnerable by sharing this and can you just elaborate like what comes to mind for you as you hear these words as you reread them as you think about what you captured here in response and in reflection to the speaker's poem to rio's poem yeah so um for people listening or watching, um, that was uh, an excerpt from an essay that I wrote in response to Abartos Rios's poem, A House Called Tomorrow, which is one of my top five, 10. If you don't know that poem already, A House Called, a house called Tomorrow, it's beautiful. 
And in it, the speaker of the poem talks about language. And there's a line in there about how um, sometimes you don't know what to say, but it's not because you're insufficient or lacking in any way. It's because you have centuries of language poured into you. Um, and you're just still trying to figure out which ones you're going to use, which words you're going to use. Right? Mm. And it's beautiful and affirming. And um, it's an example of this type of uh, writing assignment I call, not I call, but it's called a rumination essay that I found from another teacher. Um, and it's where you look at some lines of text and then you like respond in a personal way, even as you're analyzing, right? So that literary analysis isn't separate from who you are as a person, right? Like you cannot separate the I who reads from the words on the page. You have to understand that how I'm reacting and how I'm interpreting is all rooted and informed by all my life experience. Um, so when I think about those lines, I think about the ways in which like, yeah, language is, is culture, right? Mm -hmm. And language conveys values and culture in ways that like, can get lost when you don't have language. Um, and for me, and I've talked about this with a lot of people, I mean, this is like the impact of schooling, right? And especially the impact of like Western imperialism. And I can get into a whole history of like, you know, how the Phil you know, the Philippines was, you know, conquered by Spain and then was con and then was like colonized by the United States. And now the school system in the Philippines is actually like the they teach English in the school system in the Philippines. And like all of these different things and how like I don't have the words of my ancestors, right? Like I, my parents told me that I grew, that I, my parents say that until I was about four or five that I could speak Tagalog pretty fluently. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion it might be true because I can make some of the sounds that like if you're not a native speaker, you can't make, right? Because mm -hmm. you lose like your tongue isn't able to do it anymore. Um, but like I can't, recall I can't like call it up right I don't have it I don't have the fluency and I just feel like um I don't know I feel like that's an experience that a lot of students have had you know students if they're especially if they're first second third generation like not too far removed from like their home or heritage country like they really they feel that loss and um and yeah like and I think I think that what I what education should be doing is should be helping to mend back together. Like, I mean, the best version of school helps to mend back together the damage that previous versions of school and colonialism and imperialism have wrought, right? Like the separation, the division, the loss, something, a, a school that's culturally affirming, culturally responsive and sustaining is one that men's back together right or offers those opportunities um yeah so all those things come to mind when i think about those those lines yeah that's real i, I think that'll resonate with many people who are growing up in this country and trying to maintain the language of their home country language of their parents home country trying to maintain the traditions the customs the culture yeah. while also trying to be present as americans yeah so there's there's a real tension there and and it definitely resonates with me and i think it'll resonate with many others yeah i think um it's that idea of like 
healing from loss and like mm. that's intergenerational right but then also building something new at the same time you know yeah it's um yeah so anyway like i mean i had i always there's i've always had students who could identify with that idea right mm -hmm. the idea of like what gets lost when you don't have language i mean even my own kids you know my own kids like wish that they had they wish that their grandparents had spoken them like exclusively in tagalog so they could have it right um, and I don't know enough to teach them. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I just told them, well, you could, when you go to college, you could do Duolingo or some other thing. And then you go to college, just find a college that has a Tagalog class. <laughs> yeah, I've read that excerpt and it reminded me of a poem I have in my book, Blowing Tears, titled Lengua, in which mm -hmm. I'm talking about yeah. my battle with trying to maintain and speak in the native tongue and how it it comes out one it's one way in my mind and it comes out another way out my mouth yeah you know like i know i i know what i want to say and i know you know in its correct form and everything and then at the time of execution it just <laughs> eh, yeah it doesn't fully come out right yeah, there's like a distance, like that that distance between what's what you know is possible and like what's in your mind, and then what actually gets spoken and then heard. Right. 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 Yeah. So, this is always the fun part of the interview for me. Mm -hmm. If you had an opportunity oh. to have lunch with anybody, who would it be and why? Okay, so I thought a lot about this. I was like, well, there's obviously some correct answers you're supposed to say, and um. And, you know, I, the one name came out to me, up to me. And I think if I had like that one ticket, I would, I would have, uh, I would have a meal with Angela Davis mm. and I would have a meal with Dr. Davis because, um, I had the opportunity to see her speak a couple years ago Where? and, um, courageous conversations, okay. um, summit. So she's on stage with, uh, Glenn Singleton and, um, he just, I it was the first time I've seen her speak. And I was just in awe that I was like literally like 20 feet away <laughs> from her. And, um, you know, Dr. Singleton asks her, um, so, you know, you've, you had a long life, you must be very proud and you're still, and you're still working and so on. And he set it up. And then he said, basically said like, um, we have a lot of younger people in our audience, of course, and we're, you and I are like in the second half of our, you know, lifetime. And he's like, what advice would you have to give to some of our, you know, younger people working towards justice? Or what advice would you give to your younger self, knowing all you've known, right? That idea of like, you know, it's a, it's a thing, like letter to your younger self. What advice would you give to your younger self? And she said, um, she was like, well, I'm going to turn the question around, which I love that she did. She was like, I don't like that question. She's like, I'm gonna, here's a question. She's like, this is what I wouldn't ask. I would not give advice to my younger self. I would actually ask my younger self how they think I turned out. And I love that idea because she then she goes on and talks about how like the youth have such like fierce idealism, right? Like sometimes you like dismiss like young people, like they're so unrealistic. They just want everything now and blah, blah. But she's like, I want to know that I, I want my younger self to look at me now and see that, you know, maybe I didn't sell out or like I stayed true to my principles that I, I became someone that that younger self could be proud of. Right. And I like always think about that and how 
yeah, like I said, moving through life is just such a different way to think about the world. So, I mean, I got that from just sitting in like an audience listening to her. So if I could have lunch with her, I mean, I can't, I mean, I don't even know what I would do with myself. Um, so yeah, I would definitely pick Angela Davis. And if I could pick, and if I'm going to twist time around and I can do any time period, I would actually love to, I'm going to take her inspiration. And then I would actually love to have lunch with like, um, if I were to have grandchildren, I would love to have lunch with one of my grandchildren and just kind of figure or great grandchildren, like some descendants. So I could just sort of see how their, how their life turned out and hope that the world is okay. That if they've inherited a world that's gosh, worth inheriting. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's great. So for those that are listening, what's a message of encouragement that you want to offer? Yeah, it's hard. Like I, I think um, teaching is the most important work, and it's a it's a cliche to say that teachers teach all others, but it's true. We make every we make every profession, and um, it's hard work. And I, um, I thought for this question, I would just read the last lines that I wrote for the book, and it's in the epilogue, which was like the last thing that I wrote, and um, I, and I just, I just love. I mean, you're not supposed to fall in love with your own writing, but if I do like any part of my own writing, it's probably just this last part um, because I love teachers so much. Um, So I'll just read this. Teachers know about love. When we teach with love, we see each of our kids with the respect and compassion, complexity and messiness that makes them human. When we teach with love, we lead with grace and openness and hope. When we teach with love, we know that our liberation is bound in each other. If you're reading this book, I hope that it may encourage you to love fiercely, even on days when our grief about the world, when people or systems let us down, seems unbearable. Perhaps especially on those days, because the list of things to fight for is everlasting. That was beautiful. Thank you. That was beautiful. Uh, it was that's great. That's great. And my business coach Diana Benitez is going to love that because you said teach with love like three times, and that's the name of her edu travel company. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> but more importantly, it's it's what her company focuses on. You know, mm-hmm. really identifying teachers that do teach with love and bringing them on these cultural experiences, and in, in, in which you can just fall in love with different cultures and hopefully bring that into the classroom and figure out what you learn from such experiences. Mm-hmm. But love should guide our work. Absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned a few key words that you mentioned here, respect, compassion, respect, compassion, complexity, and, and messiness. Mm-hmm. And and love to see you through all of that. Right. Oh, yeah. We know teaching is messy work. <laughs> it's human work. It's the most important work. Yeah. On so many levels. And so yeah. uh, I want to thank you once again for this wonderful publication, Anti-Bias Literacy Instruction. Uh, get free, folks. It <laughs> is available now. Don't sleep. All right. Keep the enthusiasm that y'all had a year or two ago when things were like really crazy in this country. Not that things are less crazy, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we, we need to continue to dig into texts like this to inform our practice so we could learn and grow. And there's amazing people 
doing all types of work and publishing all types of books, this right here is a resource that you need to have and you need to implement this ASAP. It's extremely practical. There are visuals in here. There are sample lesson plans, QR codes for you to scan. I mean, listen, they this, this there's no excuses, folks. All right. This is a wonderful guide. And in addition to the book, you want to make sure that you get the merch because the merch is looking real fresh. I see that sweatshirt. <laughs> I know. <laughs> looking real crispy. I love it. Get yourself a T-shirt, get a sweatshirt. Support, support what Trisha is doing. Uh, Trisha, once again, appreciate you and cheering you on. Uh, we're going to see you real soon. Yep. <laughs> at, at NCTE. And so looking forward to building in person. Uh, but thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come to our classroom and, and share this wonderful work. Get free. Yeah. Thank you, Roberto. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate you. Peace. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, for resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.